Hey, Vanessa. Hey, Adam. Welcome to Uncertain Things. The Uncertain Things podcast. Welcome. Today we have Martin Gurry. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he, he needs introduction, but in case he does, he wrote the book Revolt of the Public. If a book could be a spirit animal, then then, then this would be the spirit animal of our podcast. E- even though you read it after we launched, which is which is interesting because right, he right. really brings together so many of the threads of of cultural and social unrest and anxiety and and uncertainty, which is right. is a word he used thematically um, in, in in his book quite a lot. Yeah, it gets italicized. It's important. The, there are two interesting things to note about this book. First, it was written in 2014, and it's almost creepy to read it six, seven years later. Should we call it prophetic? <laughs> I, w- I would like a lot of people who have interviewed Martin Gurry have started their their interviews being like, what the hell? How did you know all of this so early on? Because it's it's basically like he was just he's describing the Trump era. But but years before it was on so many of our radars. So I think a lot of people do use these kind of like, ah, prof- you're such a like a prophetic figure, which I think he himself is like, no, 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 no. I just had an interesting position from the CIA in which I was paying attention to what was happening in uh, in terms of media and information. And yeah, maybe I saw it a little bit first, but I definitely wasn't the only one. And if you were paying attention, you would have, you would have noticed. Right, which too. brings us to the next fascinating point about his book and again why we find it so important the perspective that informed his writing was from his experience as a media analyst for the cia which gave him a unique view on on the power of media to change social and political and institutional behavior around the world and a lot of those deep sea changes that we we are experiencing and 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 that we are trying to investigate here in certain things that seem to be affecting and destabilizing the basic ways that societies interact and understand themselves are according to Guri rooted in the technological changes in modes of communication. I, for me I think also what's helpful is kind of his framing of this current moment as what's happening now is basically as seismic in its potential consequences as what has happened only a few other times in in history and he kind of he bring, he calls this the fifth wave um adam why don't you you i think you know the better than me can you describe the, the four other waves just to kind of put it in perspective like wh- how pivotal this moment is in history right what he calls the waves are moments in human history where either cognitive or material changes have revolutionized the ways we communicate. So he counts the the development of speech, and then writing, then the printing press, then mass media in the late 19th, early 20th century, and now the, the complete dispersion of communication through the internet and, and social media. Each of these revolutions ushered an age of chaos, and an appending of existing institutions, as revolutions tend to do. And we're now living through one of those revolutions, which we are seeing clearly, because we are not interacting with the world the way we did growing up. Something is fundamentally changing. Yes, something is changing. And he really diagnoses like a lot of the tension and unrest happening right now is because this more 21st century uh, m- mode of communication and and eventually society is is still coming up quite uh, uh, 
violently against more 20th century conceptions of of how we how we communicate and how we disseminate information and who gets authority um, and who doesn't. And and so that's partly why we're in such an, a moment of unrest, because these two kind of mental conceptions are, are coming up against each other. And we are only in the beginning of trying to see the inklings of how it's going to settle out, if if at all. And I'll just add that we didn't even begin to scratch the surface of his book in this interview. So sure. I seriously um, commend you to go and, and, and get it, read it, and, and grapple with it. It's just so clarifying on so many things. Right. He also, he, and we, we start the conversation with this, but he, br- he brings in some really nice uh, language from poetry, even though this is a work of, you know, of prose. He brings in this kind of poetic language because sometimes it's that kind of language that really gets to the heart of the, <laughs> how it feels to be living in this moment. There's a lot of soul in his writing. Right. Yes. If, you, if you're into uncertain things, which hopefully you are because you're listening, you're going to like this book. <laughs> just, you just will. Yes, that is true. And with that, um, Make sure you follow us on on all the things on uncertainthing.sopsec.com. We are uncertain pod on the uh, social media, which are the cause of our demise, apparently. And yeah. um, and if you're not already, please subscribe and give us five stars on Apple Podcast because that that will be awesome. Yep, yep, yep. And with that, with that, Martin Gurry. Well, one thing I did want to ask Martin, which doesn't have yeah. to be in the interview, but. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, so one of our like uh, favorite poems that we've been turning to time and again um, that is on brand for us is um, The Second Coming by W.B. Yeats. And I think it seemed like you must be a fan, just judging from the book titles and headers and things. Yes. Um, I, uh, I'm always watching for creatures that are slouching towards Bethlehem to be born again. <laughs> Yeah, because I kept seeing like the the language pop up again in the book, yes. like center cannot hold what beast, yes. what rough yes. beast or yes. whatever, you know. We are, we are yes, this is the era of the rough beast too. I think you're right about that. Completely. Yeah, yeah it was one of my favorite poems. I had several poems. I mean, I'm a big believer that what I do is is kind of like I don't know. You slap words together and try to make sense out of them. What poets do, they really they really explain. They truly do explain. So unfortunately, we live in a very prosy era. So mm. it sounds very pretentious if you, if right. you do that too much. But if you can sneak in a uh, a phrase or two uh, without the reader even knowing that they're they're getting poetry, I, I find that very very wonderful. Well, I apologize. My computer is in disastrous shape, so I'm slugging <laughs> a little bit. They they do that. Yeah. <laughs> the greater the complexity, the um, the faster things start to fuck up. <laughs> A fantastic example of why everything fails. Yes. Martin Gurry, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. So, where should we start? <laughs> I'm, I'm really thrilled to be having this conversation, as I said in the uh, uh, preparation. Your book, The Revolt of the Public, has unintentionally served as a retroactive Bible for uncertain things in how it tries to explain the root causes of of the sort of collapse of institutions and, and, and social norms that, that we see around us. So your big thesis, and correct me if I'm, if I'm explaining it poorly, is that 
technological changes in the way we share information have had world-changing, world-breaking consequences in changing the internal logic of our society. And that the new version, which we are now living through, seems to be one of ongoing, if not perpetual, instability. All while our institutions have failed to catch up with those changes. That is exactly right. A simple way to look at it is that we have institutions, institutions of power, institutions of wealth, as you have been, I'm sure, reading the news, uh, institutions of knowledge and, and um, uh, entertainment that are basically uh, legacy, legacy in their structures from the 20th century, which was, as you know, a very, you probably don't know because you're a young man. I was there. <laughs> I can tell you. All right. It was a very, very top down time. Essentially, um, I talked, you listen, if I, had, if, I, if I was a member of these institutions. Uh, and the idea that you might talk back to me was just not even, not even in my mental horizon. Right. So that is what we have inherited. There's a good reason for that. I'm not a conspiracy theory uh, advocate. It was simply the way that it made perfect sense at that time to shape our institutions that way. Um, but unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on what side you take, or just as, as it happened, uh, we have had this tremendous, what I call a tsunami of information that these institutions were simply not built to absorb. And, and, and it's as much the amount as it is the kind of information. Everybody is always pointing a finger at social media, but this all started long before social media had the ceilings that it does right now. The second the internet became a thing, you could just start to see the seams open up in these countries and these institutions that were not used to being talked back. Now, of course, you have this, this circumstance where not only are we talking back where there's this enormous roar of anger that talks back where you can barely hear the institutions anymore, who then become very demoralized. The elites that run those institutions are very demoralized and start to make stupid mistakes. So when we're talking about information, we're talking about several things. First, we have the, um, the sheer amount of information, the fact that everybody can generate unthinkable amounts of information, share it with the rest of the world, and have access to it themselves, what's now a cliche to call the democratization of information. And the other aspect of it is the redundancy of it, the fact that information is being stored in, 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 in several places, and it's very difficult for a government to just decide to take down something they don't like because once you have a video uploaded on, on, on several social media sites, it's already diffused. These are the changes that we're talking about, right? Right. If you want to be North Korea, fine. That's just a dictator dilemma, right? If you want to retain power, uh, then you're going to have a wretched country. And, and every time you have a bad growing season, half a million people are going to die of hunger, right? Very few, even dictators, want to do that. They want prosperity. Because what else is going to uh, legitimize their rule? I mean, that's the Chinese model. If I give you 10% growth every year, how can you get rid of me, right? Um, but to do that, you have to open up the market to information. When you do that, suddenly those voices start to come up that say, no, 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 why are you doing this? And in most cases, it hasn't happened in China yet. But in most cases, uh, you see this turbulence in, in the social and political environment 
that oftentimes results in the, you know, very uh, intense protests, and sometimes in dictators being overthrown and in elected governments being thrown out. So before we get deeper into this, give us a chance to understand where you're coming from. Oh, yeah. Tell us about your experience and how it informed your view on these issues. If you want my, my way back origins, I was born in Cuba. Okay. So what that gives me is two things. I, sus- I have a suspicion of governments that, that promise magnificent rewards, the, the utopia, deeply suspicious of that. And um, I believe that liberal democracy at its worst, at its most dysfunctional, is superior to the most functional uh, dictatorship. So those are the things you, I carried from my my way back origins. Uh, so you do you don't agree with the with that old Tom Friedmanian argument that well China at least got things done. No, well I mean China got things done to the degree that it opened up its society. Yeah. So just in preparation for this interview, I, I re encountered that old piece of his, and it it shocks me every time. Right. Anew. It's just there's something almost venal. Right. About that kind of logic. <laughs> it, it, it's an absurd justifier. I mean, um, Tom Friedman, who, of course, I don't think anybody reads anymore, uh, would never have, um, would never lived under those conditions. He would never allow himself to be told, oh, you, these are the boundaries within which you are allowed to write your columns. So why he would think that the rest of us would want to do that, or anybody, including the Chinese public, would want to do that, is a deep mystery to me. But um, I was a, an analyst for many years at CIA um, of global media. So I always say that I had probably the least sexy job in CIA, right? I mean, I did not have a license to kill. Um, but as, as luck would have it, I was, I was uh, situated in a place where I could see, you know, that I had to, this is global coverage of media, global translation of the language I didn't know. So I had these, these inputs coming to me. I was, I was at this high place, let's put it that way. And I could see really, really far into this change. Early in the 20th, I mean, early in my career in the 20th century, um, the job had been very straightforward. Uh, this, the amount of open information was a trickle. Uh, you wanted, for the president said, what was the media say, you know, saying about my, um, my policies in France? Well, there were two newspapers we were going to go to, and, and 90% of them you didn't pay attention to, to, to the actual body of the newspaper. So it was a trickle. Suddenly, around the turn, turn of the century, you have this tsunami that I write about. And I think a lot of um, the credit I get is, is misplaced. I, I think I was in a high place. And I could see that far out, and I wasn't alone. That many of us who were there saw that. I was the one who was fascinated enough that once I left government, I I pursued it, uh, and and things happened like the Arab Spring. I mean, basically, the twenty teens happened. The twenty teens are like a a pulse of uh, street revolts and populists uh, that peak in twenty nineteen, right before everything is shut down by the pandemic. Okay, with like, I mean, I counted like 25, at least 25 major street insurgencies. So um, I was very lucky to be able to have seen that uh, in advance. And, um, and I asked myself the question, I mean, it, it's, it's remarkable when I look back. Okay, the internet was there. 
the information was there. And the question was, when we, we were inside the CIA saying, well, look, behind this tsunami, there is this ever-increasing level of political and social turbulence. And people would ask the question, and we honestly didn't have an answer, well, what the heck does an information device, the internet, have to do with politics? I mean, that actually could be asked back then, right? And that seemed like a silly question. So um, that was the question I posed myself. What does information have to do with politics? That really is the seed out of which that book grew. And the information, I mean, the, the data, the research that I, that I gathered began with the fact that I could see that this was coming a long time before other people did, not because I'm that much smarter than, than, than everybody else, but because I was in that, that high place I could see that much farther out. And, and I think the, the, thing that, the thing that you get credit for, I think most justifiably, is that you not only, that, I guess that you asked that question, that you, and you were able to pull in those threads and recognize that a lot of people said at the time during the Arab Spring, which we are now essentially marking the uh, uh, 10-year anniversary of, yeah. um, people were saying that uh, Twitter propelled it or the, that the, the Twitter revolution or the Facebook revolution right. of right. the time. So people were aware that those new modes of communicating information were uh, essential to enabling these movements. But what you did was so much more profound in that you thought not just how it facilitates interactions in the which you know basically which most people took as echoes of old modes of communication basically a change of quantity not quality but you recognize that the modes of communication were now informing the interactions themselves and the way that the governments were responding to these interactions the medium is the message so to speak so to understand how this change came into being we need to go back uh, into what you discuss as the uh, the old industrial Um, uh, societies in the relics of which we still live. So what do you see as the defining features of industrial societies that got disrupted by this change? Yeah, and unfortunately it has not changed enough. Um, they are, well, I mean, I can tell you because I lived in, in uh, one such institution, CIA. They are top-down. Everything happens in a hierarchical fashion. Um, that means that they are incredibly slow moving. That means that nothing gets done until all the major powers that be in the hierarchy agree that they're not going to be losing out by what happens next. All right. Um, and then when they turn to the public in the old days, in the 20th century, which you weren't there, uh, um, they would talk to the public from authority. In other words, I wasn't trying to tell you Adam, let's talk about this. This is what I think. You know, tell me, you know, feed me back your ideas. No, no, no. I have the information. You're just sitting there. You have no information. You have as much information as I tell you. So you're going to look to me as a valuable source and, and, and as a, a figure of authority. And they told uh, the public, certainly what uh, were the important issues, important public issues that you were paying attention to. And oftentimes not infrequently, how to think about these issues. Um, once that tsunami hits, of course, that entire model, you need a semi-monopoly over information to be able to maintain that, that authority. You also, you also bring up this idea of choice, right? Like the choices were so limited and that helped 
imbue the authority that that these the two newspapers had or the whatever it was. No, it's totally true. I mean, I honestly believe. I mean, one of one of the, my fascinations in talking to younger people, who's almost everybody than, than than me, right? But but younger people like yourselves is that I am speaking it to you across an incredible gulf. You can form no idea what the tiny amount of choice was that I had when I was a young man. I mean, you, you would have to be uh, vastly imaginative to, to almost a science fiction world compared to what we have today. Um, and in that science fiction world, uh, those who had any kind of information, of course, the government had it, the media had it. Uh, the universities had it, business had it. There were certain big institutions that had their part of information in a semi-monopolistic way. Uh, they had tremendous authority. Um, and so they spoke truth. I mean, what is truth? That's the question that Pontius Pilate asked. And then I think he walked out of the room before anybody could answer, um, which is probably not a bad idea. Um, <laughs> He, I mean, basically, we tend to think of truth as either some kind of platonic form or, or a gift from science or something along those lines. Truth essentially is um, some, some, some story that we're told by a person whom we trust or, or a figure, that, uh, institutional figure that we trust. Um, and once the monopoly, semi-monopolies of information are gone, that, that authority is gone. And truth becomes up for grabs. And what you see today, of course, is um, there, there are 20 takes on, on every situation. And, and um, part of the elite mindset today is that they believe they own the truth. And that is just palpably, you know, a mistake because they think in a platonic sense that they they have they have or a scientific sense i'm sure they would think of it that they have come, they have arrived at something that is unshakable and you need to listen uh, and anybody i mean yeah if you're an anti-vaxxer you're probably kind of a crazy person and and, and this slides real quick into craziness because once once the lid is off once there is no authority what's to stop the craziness from happening right but there are many other aspects of of you know, our, 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 our political uh, play, our political story that can be seen from many different directions and look very different depending on where you're standing. Now, one of the features that you point out of industrial societies, which they used in order to maintain their top-down order, is bureaucratization, right? It was a way that allowed a, a, a government to manage an increasingly growing workforce and, 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 and maintain efficiency. As a result, the system started believing in, in its own perfectibility that this way of organizing society, which may have been right for a, a certain moment in history, is, is the blueprint for human prosperity and well-being. If you come across a problem, just just form a new government office with its own hierarchy of experts, and they'll look into it. At which point, we're just a few tweaks away from perfect and the apex of human flourishing. Now, what you point out is that as the, the, the failures of, of big states to deliver on these big promises became more clear to, to the elites running those governments, 
they became more timid. They grew timid about actually implementing big projects and instead started pursuing small, almost trivial tasks without actually foregoing the rhetoric of, of architecting a, a perfect society. But once we have a uh, revolution of information, this dissonance becomes clear for everyone to see. Yeah, I mean, I honestly believe, Adam, that utopia was front and center for every system, every political system, practically to, to the collapse of the Soviet Union. And then after that, it became almost implied, but it became less, less uh, explicit um, because the conflict wasn't there. And then, of course, around the turn of the century, it began to disintegrate. But it, utopia was always there. The, the idea was, if you could apply enough political power, and that depended on the system. If you were the Soviet Union, it was you could kill hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions to get there. If you're the United States, you just spent a lot of money and disrupted a lot of people. Uh, but if you applied enough political power and enough scientific thinking, because science is kind of like the, the god of, of this, this outlook, um, you could achieve utopia. You could cure the human condition. And um, the political rhetoric that evolved in that time was shaped around that. You know, vote for me, I will end um, unemployment. Vote for me, I will end inequality. And um, what has happened, I think, that is very dysfunctional is that, um, as you say, the, the institutions no longer have this great ambition. They always, the failures always far outstrip the successes. But if you have a semi-monopoly over information, it doesn't matter. You're sort of judged on your ambition rather than your um, outcomes, right? Uh, but now you're being judged on your outcomes and you're mostly failing. So you're going to try less. I mean, nobody could build Hoover Dam today. Everybody brags about Hoover Dam being the government. Nobody could build it today. You couldn't get past all the hoops to build it, right? Um, so the government has become far more timid and, and palpably so, and, and the elites far more demoralized, but the political rhetoric is still the same. So to get elected president, you have to promise things that are almost utopian and that the second you're in office are going to start eroding the people's trust in you because you can't possibly get there. there you're not gonna, the president of the United States is not gonna get us into utopia. So where does the information revolution come in? Well, I mean, I think once you have that information out there, you you are it's like you know the constitutional convention was a closed uh enterprise they did not let anybody in there were no reporters there there was there was just these very brilliant people putting together the structures that were going to govern our country for the next you know 250 years if you had opened that up and brought in uh um you know all the 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 web uh, reporters and, and all the normal media. And, I mean, you couldn't have done it. You simply could You would have been a lot more timid. You would have played to to the audience. Is what Yuval Levin, I don't know if you know about him and his book, uh, talks about our performative elites. Well, when these institutions suddenly become like theaters in the round because everybody can see deep into them that used to be closed, the temptation is overwhelming to play to the audience and to, to basically play for applause rather than achievement. And I think that's what happens. You have people playing for applause rather than achievement, so nothing gets done. But meanwhile, the rhetoric is sustained. You're still talking. I can, I can cure inflation. There's absolutely no, if you read a book by Paul or Murad, Why Things Fail, uh, he 
to my uh, satisfaction, explains how we don't really have a lot of knowledge long term how to bring down inflation, uh, unemployment. You can spend a lot of money and you get a little pump out of that. It's like a, like a shot of adrenaline in the arm. But when the adrenaline is over, you kind of go like, well, we're back to where we started a little bit worse. So the promises that are made are utopian still. And we, as the public, expect them of our politicians. I mean, in the end, I'm not blaming our politicians. I'm blaming the electorate, us, uh, because we expect them. If somebody says, well, I'm going to try this, but we are not sure that it's going to work. And if it doesn't try, we're going to keep doing trial and error until we get there. A person would never get elected. Never. Not once. That's what we need, though. That's the rhetoric we need. We need humility and we need honesty. And what you have now is essentially um, promises that can't be met. I feel like we should probably get into the um, information, the fifth wave here. Um, so one, so you, we've kind of briefly touched on this before, but let's start flushing it out a bit more. And, and one of the things that I think is interesting is the way, the ways that people interpret what's happening to society because of technology has definitely gone through different interpretations, right? Like I, like with the Arab Spring, maybe a lot of people were like, wow, it's amazing. Technology is going to change the world in a positive way. And now we're in a moment of profound tech clash where people are like, this technology, it's the end of everything. Um, and, and we recently had a conversation with journalists Matt Welch, and he was saying, you know, like, I think it's overblown. Like this, like, how many times have we introduced a new technology to society, and everybody thinks it's the end of the world? Like, zippers were the end of the world, and it, it was all overblown. It's we just needed time to adapt to this new technology. And so he was kind of putting forth that um, that theory that it's we're 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 over we're overthinking this technology thing. But I just keep having the sensation that there's something quite fundamentally different occurring now and we don't have to put it into social media but i think what your book kind of uncovers is yes there is something fundamentally different happening about the kinds of technologies and the ways that they're disseminating information so would you mind potentially kind of explaining why this isn't just something we've seen before oh we've seen it before uh okay we've seen it before <laughs> uh and poss possibly the most disruptive instance in history uh, was the invention of the printing press, uh, which, um, of course, it's had a long, longer run, a much longer run than, than, uh, than the web, but uh, the things that it brought, good and horrible, uh, are on a way on a level beyond anything that's happening now, okay? Uh, essentially, without uh, the printing press, you wouldn't have had the French Revolution, the American Revolution, or the scientific revolution, all right? Um, on the other hand, so that sounds great, though, very positive, uh, you almost, you would have had difficulty having the 30 years war, which was the most horrific war in Europe up until that time in which millions died. Germany was depopulated for generations. And it, the cause for that war was essentially that groups, religious groups differed in about, 10 different words in their, in their beliefs. But the words were right there in those books, all right? And they all walked out with their books. And the people who didn't have those words were to be exterminated. Um, and my friend, Antonio Garcia Martinez, I don't know if you know who he is, but he's, I always recommend him as the smartest man on Twitter, fellow Cuban. Um, he says, if you had gone to, um, to Germany, 
in the Thirty Years' War, and you had, you had asked, well, what do you think? What do you think of the printing press? People would have said it is the most horrific and uh, destructive new technology that has ever been invented. So we're in the very early days of the web. I always say that we we are in the very beginnings of a colossal transformation. This is not zippers. <laughs> this is not zippers. We're in the very beginnings of a colossal uh, transformation from the industrial age of the 20th century to something that honestly doesn't even have a name, okay? So we are now on a long march to somewhere that we're not even sure where that is. Um, and um, the one thing that is pretty certain is that we are not going back. I think part of the conflict today is this, this deep-seated um, nostalgia that the elites have for the 20th century, which is a good time for them. Nobody turned back. Um, and therefore, an unwillingness to see how these institutions can be reshaped, reconfigured around, around the, the digital uh, technology. I think Vanessa's discomfort with Matt's uh, over, I, I don't want to say overconfidence, because, but with Matt's position on this is not whether or not we, we saw something like this before, but the idea that we had revolutions in the past doesn't mean that we will necessarily survive them. It almost reeks of uh, survivor's bias. From this side of the revolution, we can unequivocally cheer and say, we definitely rather live now than before Gutenberg. But, you know, there were 500 years of, of tumult and uh, intervening, and, and we we're just at the beginning of this revolution. Who the hell knows what's waiting for us on the other side and when? That, that's exactly my position. I, th I think it is a matter of time. I think, of course, we will, we will adapt. I think there will be a new form of authority at some point that takes into account uh, all the tricks of the digital environment. The question for me is, is liberal democracy going to be there when that happens? And this is one of the reasons I really quite connected with your book. You you have a horse in this race, and it's it's your concern for the survival of, of liberal democracy. Uh, so to go a step further into your analysis, you've borrowed a framework that helped you understand this change in power relations. Specifically, you use two terms, border and center. Can you explain them? Yeah, these are sociological terms. Um, uh, I have a very terrible memory, so I can't, I can't bring up the, the authors of, of the book where, where I, I derived it from. But essentially, um, every society has a center. The center is, has many of the qualities that we, we describe for the 20th century, it's centralized, it's administrative, it's uh, standardized, it's top-down, it, um, it is obsessed with rank, and, and everybody's always bowing to everybody else. Um, it moves slowly, it is always being surprised by events because it lives in this, this world where the information is held very tightly by a few people. Um, the border, on the other hand, is wild, right? And it's sectarian. And it is egalitarian to a fault. All right. So when I read that book, the thing that struck me as amazing was that they were describing this book was written in the 70s, the 80s, 80s, I think. Uh, it described the web culture perfectly. It was egalitarian to a fault, uh, a sectarian, and they were thinking of it in terms of true sects. Um, you basically have to agree about everything it, it, and you don't have ideologies you don't have leaders you have 
a modeling of virtue. You and your person model virtue. And if there are any disagreements, things splinter. <laughs> you go form out your own little sect, right? And so it's an endless splinter, of, but there's enormous energy in this because these are people who are true believers. These are people who, who have a, a sense of the evil of the center. Anything the center does, I mean, basically the, the border exists to attack the center and, and to counteract it. They believe that everything that happens in the center is corrupt and everything that happens in the center is self-serving. Uh, and and to be, to be a free individual and to be a, a person of dignity, you have to assert your own uh, way of being. And, and you can only do that with a tiny little group of people. The difference with the web is suddenly real sects have to be small. The sectarian mind in the digital universe exploded in dimension. Suddenly it's scaled. It scaled amazingly. So you can think, think of, of the web culture as a sectarian mind at scale. And, and basically what we have today is uh, the seeping of the sectarian approach into our politics. I mean, I think both Obama and Trump were deeply sectarian politicians. We are now at a point where we are starting to see more border behavior infiltrating the center. And again, you describe how the, the, the border is, is this force of destruction and protest, but that it doesn't really have the desire or power to organize as, as a governing force. Now, we've just had four years of, of Trump, which is a, is a clear manifestation of this type of border mentality. But you show in your book and, and make a very elucidating case, I think, for me um, – and you wrote the book in 2014, how Obama was already an early version of that. Because especially after he lost Congress and, 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 and was reelected, he seemed to have focused more time and effort in broadcasting his solidarity with the anger of the border, with this constant frustration and show that he's part of the protest against the center to which he now belonged. And I wonder if you see something similar with some of the reactions of Republicans to the, uh, to the riots on January 6th. Aren't they also trying to channel the rage and anarchy of the border, but from inside government? I would, I would disagree with that. I think, I think they were, they're just afraid and demoralized. And by the way, you can make the same claim, uh, for example, of, um, you know, all the Democratic mayors in the cities that had violent uh, protests and, and riots who did the same thing. They just basically, I mean, the, 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 the poor mayor of Portland tried to join the protest. Of course, he was hooted out. He, he didn't realize he was an elite. He thought he was going to be one of the good guys, you know. Um, but they are very afraid and very demoralized, and they feel like they're not... They're not on the winning side of history. And of course, they don't know what to do. They want to have their, their cake and eat it too. They want to have the 20th century, man, it's great at the top. I can just talk and talk and talk and, and, and nobody, uh, nobody contradicts me. But they also want, obviously, they're politicians. They want to be able to project themselves into the future and they see this tsunami, you know, coming at them. And so they... So you're saying yeah. they're not genuinely channeling the border, they're just caving to it because they, they, they feel powerless. I think there are many different, you know, it depends on the individuals, obviously. But I think as a rule, I would say, I would, I would define our elite class as primarily 
uh, wedded to 20th century behaviors and yet completely demoralized about how successful those behaviors are going to be politically. So they're kind of, they're just paralyzed. They're paralyzed. You can see it in their eyes, you know? I mean, one of my favorite quotes of all time was uh, Andrew Cuomo, um, after basically Black Lives Matter uh, protests had taken out midtown Manhattan, um, and he said, um, you don't have to protest anymore. You don't have to protest anymore. These, of course, were the sectarians in the street. Uh, he said, you've won. He said it twice. You won. You won. You don't have to protest anymore. You can get what you want. And they pause and he goes, what do you want? <laughs> you know? And that, of course, is, is the frightening thing to, to the elites is if you are confronting a, a sectarian revolt based on negation, no policy is going to appease them. There has been no um, many kinds. This is not, this, the, the, the Cuomo's uh, example is, I can multiply that for you, many times where governments that were under these protests yielded and said, okay, you yield. Whatever you protesters want, we will give you. And of course, the protesters, they, they just said, well, that's not good. That nothing you can do is going to satisfy me. And so they went around and around. That was back there. Yeah, it was when... Uh, when uh, Black Lives Matter basically just had a fairly violent and, and destructive uh, episode in, in midtown Manhattan. And he was trying to basically tell them that he was sympathetic to them, but he didn't know what he was being sympathetic to. So he was asking, well, what do you want? What are you, what are you doing all this for? And the answer is, is we, we, we want to bash at you. We want to take you down. Sectarians, right. uh, the sectarian mindset would consider itself polluted, impure, if it struck any deal with the center. And so it, it, it's, a, it's a pretty terrible dynamic. I do think it's just, a, it, it is worth just sitting on that for a second because this, this idea of the, the public or the, the protesters being defined by negation and not being for anything is actually, I think a really, it sounds really straightforward, but I think it is actually quite, profound like the, when you when you ask when you ask these these crowds right like what is it that what is your alternative what are you suggesting what do we work towards there is no answer because the only unifying force is what we don't want right and then how do you move forward when the when the whole energy is bound up in negation and that is not to say that some of the people involved in this protest don't have a very clear vision of what kind of world they want to bring about but as a movement, they don't really have a program for governing. Right. And I mean, um, there are as many policies being put forward, I would guess, as there are individuals that, that go out there. That is the sectarian way. Is that I'm not following a leader. I'm following my own impulse, my own conscience and going out there. Um, I mean, I, it, it's, it's a painful process. But um, as part of my research, you can find hours hours of young people talking on YouTube, for example, in, in the Seattle and the Portland Autonomous Zones, right? And, mm -hmm. and they talk endlessly, of course, these are young people, they have a lot to say, they think. Um, and they have, of course, the devices to, to you know, the, essentially they're video selfies. Um, and you can listen to, for hours and not come across a single um, concrete demand. In other words, we must change X, Y, or Z, or else we'll do, you know, whatever. But what you hear a lot is a 
kind of a pride in in modeling a virtuous behavior. Look, here we are, this autonomous zone. People are coming in and bringing us water and food and, and we're all treating each other as like brothers and sisters and, and I'm part of this. And, and so it's kind of a, the sectarian mind is moralistic, it's not political. And, and it, it seeks kind of like an internal revolution, not a political revolution. And, and these young people are putting themselves forward as models but, but that's as far as it goes. You cannot, once you have a leader, then it's kind of like, no, who made you a leader? Why are you better than me? And the problem is, of course, you know, I mean, I always say, I think our, our institutions are hierarchical to a ridiculous degree. I think they're, they, you needed to do that in the 20th century. You don't have to do that in the 21st, but you need a hierarchy. You need a hierarchy to get anything done. I don't know how else you get it done other than by some sort of arrangement where somebody is coming together and saying, this is what needs to be done. And somebody goes, okay, I'll, I'll help you do it. And you can't do it voluntarily because, you know, then that's a point of failure. You, so you wrote the book in, um, in 2014 and a, a lot of the story comes in from 2011, right? It's kind right. of like tipping point year, this momentous year. And you kind of go through the different Phase change. Yeah, that you go through the different movements that emerge and you describe, you know, the things that are the through lines kind of between them. Uh, I mean, I would probably posit that 2020 was a similarly explosive year, potentially. And I'm, I mean, we saw waves of different types of protests. I'm thinking in Chile and Hong Kong and the U.S. Um, do you see a through line between 2011 through 2020 or do you think that it's evolving or changing in some way? It was 2019. So 2019, I think I, I told you, was the cusp of of that cycle of revolts. It was crazy. I, I, I mean, that's supposed to be the thing I do. I couldn't keep up. I had no idea. Somebody would tweet me, go, oh, Gary, you need to look at this. And we're like, what the hell is this? I mean, I have no idea. Every day there seemed to be a different one. And it happened in, in poor countries. I mean, like, like um, Sudan. It happened in rich countries like France. It happened in, in dictatorships like Algeria. And it happened in, you know, really sound and strong democracies like Chile's. So it had nothing to do necessarily with economic deprivation, or at least not mainly about that, not only about that. And it, and it wasn't necessarily a cry for democracy. It was this the sense that modern government as it is currently structured, uh, it, it needs to be changed, needs to be negated, all right? Uh, and that's what drove these revolts in all these countries. I mean, Hong Kong and so many, so, so many different places. So um, it's the same thing. I, it's the identical same thing. You, you see the, um, the behaviors, uh, they're the, exactly the same thing. And the same thing that you saw in, in Black Lives Matter as well. There are no leaders. There are no serious structures. They're little groups, but they are web-type groups, very low, loose and 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 um, very unhierarchical. Uh, there is no ideology. There is vague flavors, so you can be vaguely right-wing, like like the yellow vests in in France, or you can be vaguely uh, left-wing, like the indignados in Spain, but that's vague, okay? It's really vague, and they rarely, and they do not assert that. They don't call themselves those things. So um, there are no leaders. There's no proposals. In France, uh, the president gave, gave the Yellow Vest everything they wanted. It wasn't good enough. The public never takes yes for an answer. Uh, they basically, th their, their demands are systemic and, and, uh, and 
negative. So nothing, no positive policy is going to satisfy them. I would argue that, at least for Black Lives Matter, that there is... The, the inciting incidents are much more well-defined and the, the, the structures that they're fighting against are more well-defined than, say, Antifa, which is an organization of pure negation. They were already protesting Biden on the eve of his inauguration. And maybe it's because uh, Black Lives Matter has, has a different tradition to draw on of, of the, the history of the civil rights movement that does ground it in, in more 20th century type of, of protests, to some extent at least. Couldn't disagree more. I think, I think um, the uh, Black Lives Matter protests connect to the Indignados and, and the Yellow Vest far more than they would to say the um, the kinds of uh, moral crusades that that uh, Martin Luther King espoused. I mean, uh, the civil rights movement, again, believe it or not, I was alive for that time. Um, I, was, I was really young. Um, the civil rights movement was about equalizing a very unjust and long-running circumstance. Black Lives Matter, you say that the, the, um, the, the triggering episode, you know, it, I almost hesitate to say it because that's so, take it for granted. The triggering episode, I'm a, one of the few things I actually know a little bit about is um, visual persuasion, visual analysis. I, I've actually introduced that at the CIA. I mean, the thing you know about visual analysis, there's a gigantic background story that you're not privy to. So your first thing you need to do is that, okay? And so you're seeing something, and that something is being communicated very powerfully because visual, visuals are powerful. They, they go into your reptile brain, and all your training in, no, I'm fighting the uh, rhetoric, I know I'm being led in a certain direction, is gone because your reptile brain just reacts. Um, and so all I'm saying is it could very well have been that this, this cop that, that was responsible for the death uh, just hated black people or hated this particular black person, George Floyd. But you can offer other explanations. The reason it exploded was because there was a group online that was every time this kind of uh, thing happened where uh, uh, the cops would would kill or, or harm uh, a black person, they would try to push forward. And and at a certain moment, these things break loose and they break loose in random ways. I always compare them to why do... Um, stories or memes go uh, viral online. And they're all, they're all kinds of analysis about this and they give you all the qualities you have to have. And all those qualities tend to be there for all the, the viral uh, stories. But then there are millions of other stories that have those qualities and don't go viral. So to me, is it, there's some random element involved in these, and all these protests, not just Black Lives Matter, all of them. Why did they happen where they, when they happened? It's a sort of a random anger that a particular moment, same thing happened in France with uh, the Yellow Vest. They had, they had what they called um, anger groups on Facebook, Groupe de Colère, where they basically yelled. For a year, they were sitting there yelling about Macron, and then they passed this, I think it was like five cent tax on, on diesel fuel or 10 cent tax, and the whole thing exploded. I mean, it, it, was a, it was a completely disproportionate response to what was happening. 
That was not the cause. I don't think George Floyd was the cause. I don't think that the tax was the cause. There was this anger. There was this sectarian rage and need for negation. And at some random moment, some, some aligning of the moons and the stars, this thing goes viral and people are on the streets by sometimes in the millions. Right. And the thing that makes your argument so persuasive is that it's not coincidence that we're now seeing this worldwide eruption of dissatisfaction, like whether it's Antifa or QAnon or previously the Arab Spring and the Green Revolution in Iran or the Indignados. And obviously these groups don't have the same moral valence yeah. in my view, but there is something that is propelling no. this mood. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I just think... I just think there is a misalignment between all these institutions um, and um, and the way the public lives. I mean, it's that simple. Uh, I think you know you can get you can get a car, a house, a spouse by a, a click of the mouse, right? I, like I, at the speed of light, I can get myself a spouse. I'm married already, so it's not going to happen. But you know, if I wanted to, I could. All right. Um, but then you want to get yourself a passport and it's like six weeks. You want to get yourself a building permit. It's probably 10 years or six years or whatever, right? You are suddenly in the world of the 20th century where these things move, you know, in a creeping, in a creeping way. And there is a sense, and I don't think it's, I mean, we can just discuss it, but I don't think it's necessarily false that all those um, obstacles and procedures don't exist for the people at the top. They can sail through. You know, I always watched with great amazement, uh, having lived in CIA, where if I had done the slightest thing uh, inappropriate with, um, with obviously classified materials, my butt would have ended, landed in jail. And several people, several people that I know of who were high, high government officials of different administrations, I mean, walked home with them, for example, uh, and were kind of wrapped on the knuckles and said, well, you can't have this job anymore. But nobody ended in prison. And I think that that was then is it's perceived to be way worse. Now, the idea that, yeah, there's all these things, there's this tremendous paralysis of government. I want to get something done and government gets in my way rather than than help me out. Um, but that's not true for them. Government seems to work for them because they get a lot out of it and they get to rule over the rest of us. So that's, I think the anger is based on that. There's an element of truth. And your argument even goes deeper because when it comes to protests in liberal democracies, especially among the more prosperous classes, at least with some of them, there is an element of, of social psychology almost. Because we're not talking about people who are oppressed in, 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 in the way that the Iranians are or uh, people under Mubarak or Sisi are. So you observe that many of these protests are of young, affluent people who are looking for government to fill something in their hearts <laughs> that's missing. They expect government to be able to fix everything, including the ineffable vacancies in their lives and it's the government's failure to do that that really enrages them exactly i mean i think that the anger is explicit about political and social uh issues but unstated and probably or originates 
not in political questions, but in existential questions. Um, I think, I think um, we're dealing with a generation. Most of this is young millennials and Zoomers, okay, out in the street. Um, and I, you're dealing with a generation where um, religion, you know, formal religion is, is very um, minimal and um, community is, is not what it used to be where you had these very structured organizations that your family would, would be in. Um, even the family is not what it used to be when you look at the numbers of, of homes where, you know, there's either not a mother or not a father. Um, and, and, and so the places that gave you uh, what human beings desire the most once they know they're not gonna starve to death, which is meaning. All right. Now, the first thing is I have to feed, feed myself and my family. Second thing is, is why am I here? Um, they're trying to derive meaning from politics. That's a little bit of what I was talking about with those, those young people in, in the autonomous zones who were so proud to be modeling those, those, uh, those behaviors. That, that was, you could just see that there was meaning. And the, the, the trouble with that is, um, why would you want to stop that? The second you stop your protest, no matter what they gave you, you would lose that meaning. And, and yeah, that was very, very striking in Israel because the people who were doing the, not, this is not unusual in these protests, the people who were doing the protesting were probably the most affluent people in, uh, in Israel. None of the poor people, none of the poorest or the most marginalized people uh, ever participated in any large numbers. One of the points that you make in the book is that this isn't going to wrap up anytime soon. This this period of of instability. Um, it, is your point that we can't really reach an equilibrium point because both sides are so antithetical to each other? Well, I mean, like I said before, I think sooner or later there will be uh, some sort of adaptation to this this tremendous change by the institutions. Um, my guess, and I, as you probably know from the book, I don't really make predictions. Prediction was a CIA business model. And what I say is that as long as tomorrow looks like yesterday, which is most of the time, you do great. But the second it deviates from that, which is when you really want to know, it, you do terrible. It, it, my sense of it is, and this is just a sense, a gut sense, a speculation, is that I'm not going to see the end of it. You may not see the end of it, but you might. Um, this is going to go on for a while. This is the equivalent of the printing press. The printing press took a long, long time to work out all its permutations. I mean, imagine all those um, uh, enlightened despots uh, all over Europe who suddenly felt like, why are they reading these books? How do we keep them out? The idea of censorship didn't exist until the printing press, because there weren't enough books and there weren't enough literate people. So um, basically, we are at the beginnings of that. Uh, you can, and I, I am, and this is just temperament, short-term pessimist, long-term optimist. Why couldn't we? Why couldn't we work this out? I mean, in essence, that's what happened in the 20th century. The United States, before that divide of the, the progressive era, um, was a lot, you know, more uh, closer to the ground. The institutions were flatter. I mean, if you ever read about Teddy Roosevelt, uh, uh, his second inaugural, the president stood out there in front of the White House shaking hands of anybody who came. And Teddy Roosevelt was famous because he was this epic 
physical specimen. And he would literally shake hands for like 10 hours, right? And thousands of people. But there was a president in front of the White House shaking hands. Could you do that today? I mean, of course you couldn't. So, um, but what happened was that was a flat um, form of government that was very wonderful if you happened to be, you know, a gentleman. I mean, it was essentially a gentleman's republic. Um, and then you had these millions of people who entered history in the 20th century, the early part of the 20th century, and they had to be organized somehow. And there were mass movements that were organized and they were very hierarchical, very structured. And, and the industrial model, you know, happened to be just there to be borrowed from. So that, that idea was, that you, you know, scientific management, we have scientific government. Um, so we changed once already. So this is not like the, the, the government of the United States is the way it was back, you know, when the constitution first was put into effect. Um, there's no reason why we can't do it again, peacefully. I want to give you a chance to comment on recent events. Uh, I mentioned the Capitol riot. It's the, the, the epic closure of the Trump presidency. It's ended the way it was always bound to. What's your assessment of the past four or five years? I mean, I think the Trump years were um, uh, extreme sectarianism and power. I think Trump was elected and, and um, I'll give you my interpretation of Trump, which I find the elites absolutely disagree with. And unfortunately for me, I mean, when do you talk to the public, right? I mean, there's a great thing about a podcast is you actually get to talk to a normal person. But, <laughs> but I mean, uh, so I spend a lot of time amongst the elites and they all think I'm, I'm, I'm half crazy. But, but they think of Trump as this master manipulator that, you know, pull the thread with um, fake news and make the public seem like, you know, up was down and white was black and therefore bamboozled people into following him. Uh, my theory is the exact opposite. My, my theory was is that you had this angry public uh, that wanted to bash at the institutions. And how do you, how do you decide? I mean, basically what, what it wanted was somebody to stand up and say, I'm the man. The uh, mainstream politics, the elite politics, refuse to give the public that option. So the idea of a polite, normal uh, rebel against the system uh, was canceled. So the public looked for somebody who was totally weird, who sounded completely not like all the talking heads in Capitol Hill and the White House and so forth, and and thought, well, this guy is our man. He is the club that I'm going to use to smash at these institutions. And Trump was very good at being a club. Of course, you know, you're smashing at the institutions you happen to be presiding over. That may not be the most productive thing in the world to do. So that is, that is my take on, on, the, uh, on the Trump years. I would say this, the people who opposed Trump were equally as destructive and equally as crazy and bizarre. I mean, I think his great talent was to make his opponents be just as nutty as he was, okay? Um, so uh, I think it, it took two to tangle on that one and, and, and that, that the, 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 um, the Trump years were, uh, that was the theater that you saw, one side going crazy and the other side even worse. How, how, how do you mean? I mean, I, I, obviously, 
in, in the sense that he knew how to play the game of sectarianism. You definitely need to give him credit that he, he spoke that language. As people have mentioned, he was essentially an internet troll, which is just another word to say he's a border sectarian and knows how to galvanize his own side and knows how to incite the other and benefit from it. So I will certainly acknowledge that he provoked a lot of crazed responses sometimes disproportional from his opponents. But how do you mean that they were as destructive? Well, I mean, I don't know if you read my, um, my essay that I just published in the City Journal, but that's essentially the descent of the New York Times into what Andre Mir, uh, a media scholar that I really I, I respect a lot, calls uh, post-journalism. Um, and I don't want to get into that too much, but I'll give you one example. Okay. The New York Times had possibly, I mean, it's difficult to measure, but as far as I could figure out, over 3,000 pieces, uh, articles that were published on the Trump-Russia um, conspiracy, all right, during the, the, the Mueller years. So uh, the entire New York Times newsroom was reorganized for that single story. Practically, I mean, I think virtually every story uh, had Trump being guilty of something. Uh, virtually every day in the New York Times was the end of Trump. Uh, and at the end of that two-year process, Mueller comes out and says, there's absolutely no evidence that anybody in the United States conspired with Russia. Okay, so you had two years of a uh, the most respected newspaper in the world, probably, dedicating itself to a story that wasn't there, okay, because they hated Trump so much. And for other reasons that you can find, there's actually a business incentive for that, uh, which you can read in my, in my essay. But the point is, they, they looked on Trump as Trump looked as the institutions, and they were perfectly willing to bash, you know, the, um, impeach or try to impeach over every possible way to get rid of him, um, which communicated to his people that, well, whenever we elect somebody, it's not never legitimate. There were people on the streets the day he got elected. There were a million people on the streets of Washington the day after inauguration. He hadn't done a thing. He had not lifted a finger. So there was a sense that he was not legitimate from the beginning. And people, as institutions like the New York Times treated him as not legitimate from the beginning. So I think both sides bear the blame. Trump gets blamed uh, out in the open. He was the president and should have been, uh, but also all the articulate institutions of, of, uh, of the United States turned on him. So, you know, they have a loud voice. We heard that. But the other side was equally irresponsible, I think. I would I would agree that sectarianism exists in both sides, but I don't. But there are different types and different forms, and 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 I do think that there. I mean, I, I don't want to get into this argument because I think it will take, derail us. But I, but 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 I have a small pushback there, which I'll just register. Um, more interestingly, I, I wonder how do you see this tango in terms of your 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 scheme is that just because everything is now sectarian because every the, the, the there is no more there was no, no, no. Was, I, the, I i i no i think i think those are not sectarians i think trump represented some very powerful sectarian forces i think the rest is is what i would call a, a reactionary movement people whose whose um ideal 
are somewhere in the 20th century. You know, they, they want to react, you know, basically move the world back to the past. Um, and I think most of the people that opposed Trump were institutional actors. I mean, in, uh, that I'm talking about here, were institutional actors, were elites, and were driven crazy by Trump. I mean, they, they did and said crazy things. Um, and, and, uh, and in the process, did their own little bashing at the institutions. They probably didn't mean to. That wasn't, that, was, that wasn't their aim. They were aiming at Trump. But Trump was the president, whether they liked it or not. And they pretty much said, no, he's not. Okay. And so I think there was a lot of destructiveness. So it, was, so it was the dissonance of, of, of having uh, a border character at yes. the center. An extreme border character with a weird personality, which I don't think is necessary, right? So, I mean, all kinds of things that you can say about Trump. Yes. And, and, and I think the election of Joe Biden is a fascinating inflection point, right? I mean, this guy is the 20th century all over. I mean, and the thing about him is he's totally boring, and mm -hmm. totally mediocre, right? I mean, he's, this is a man who's, I mean, he's, he's been a politician for forever. I think he's been, it was in the Senate for like 36 years. Um, you know, he was perfectly honorable service, but didn't achieve much and ran for president twice and, um, you know, flared out each time pretty early on. Um, he, he represents the old ways. He represents the victory of those elites who wanted you know, basically to restore uh, the 20th century. Um, it may be, by the way, I mean, this is just a personal judgment that maybe what we need for the next four years is boring. I mean, it would be kind of sweet, wouldn't it? But not only that, but in the context of the COVID pandemic, like no matter how much you want to like rail against the establishment, like I am currently, you know, craving science to to lead a response that is centralized and coordinated in order to approach a public health you know emergency and so that i could imagine there being some sort of reversion back to some desire of of this 20th century mindset at, at, at least in this moment of 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 uh, unprecedented difficulty well you're not the only one who's told me that i mean i'm watching i think the great question nobody's asking right now, right, is at some point, guess what? We're all going to get vaccinated. At some point, this great public that in 2019 was in absolute crazy revolt mode, is going to go back out into the streets. The great question nobody's asking is, what's it going to want to do, right? And I've heard, I have a you know, the person that I have, I have worked with, let's say, I've, I've run across, David Goodhart, uh, a British writer, who told me it's going to be the hour of the state. I mean, we basically have been, you know, told to go home and wash our hands, and we went home and washed our hands. And, and uh, we, we've been kind of taught to obey. And that could be what you, you, you gave me a, another possibility. A, a second possibility is going to be, it may be the roaring 2020s. I tell you, I'm halfway there. I mean, if I can go get vaccinated and I'm old enough, I'm going to be early on. Uh, I don't want to go out there and party, man. I mean, it's like I've been stuck at home too long. People are going to want to go uh, to work. They want to make money. They want to get married. They want to raise children. All the things that have been put on delay, they want to go out there and do social things mostly, though. And politics may be allowed. Yeah, whatever. If you look at the original roaring 20s, um, it, basically you had this 
boring Republican government that nobody paid any attention to, totally inconsequential, while there were powerful social and economic forces being being propelled by the public. Third possibility is you're going to get revolt on steroids. People are going to come out angry. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. I, I can't tell you. Is there something that we can do on the level of rhetoric and discourse to kind of potentially make a difference in in the current state, this current state of non-equilibrium of instability? You know, when I think about myself, I think I do tend towards a little bit of these characteristics of the public of like a little bit nihilistic, a little bit like I have large expectations of the government that I feel I'm are not achieved i you know uh maybe i am a little bit you know spoiled (laughs) and feel like i deserve certain things um but is there is there some way of rather than kind of feeding the this this nihilistic streak and being so um like negative in 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 speech is 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 there something that can be done in terms of the way we talk about our society that could make a difference or is that just a, kind of like a pipe dream no i, mean, uh, I think there, there absolutely is of course there is i mean i think all the all the powerful tendencies today pull against that so you are sort of swimming upstream against a powerful current um but it can be done it can be done i think we have to watch our words we have to watch our expectations we have to I mean, I'll tell you what my method of analysis is. My method of analysis is try and look at a question, an event, uh, a conflict, whatever, from as many possible perspectives as, as my brain can hold. I mean, it has a limit. I can't, you know, I can't do every possible perspective. But for example, when I was a CIA, it was like, okay, if you're Al-Qaeda, all right, and CIA had this habit that drove me crazy of uh, calling terrorists the bad guys, the bad guys. Like they woke up every morning saying, what bad thing am I going to do today, right? Well, I mean, when you read their stuff, you realize that they were heroes to themselves. They were, they were noble heroes. I believe they were basically the second coming of, of the uh, companions of Muhammad. And so put, if you want to defeat them, calling them the bad guys, forget it, you're never gonna get there but understanding how they think, what their ideas of, of right and wrong are, how close are they to their own ideas of right and wrong? They were very far off. They said things, but did very terrible things. Um, and I think today we're in the same boat. When you talk about Trump, understand, try to understand why somebody would vote Trump and think of it as a good thing. Think of it as this is, this is, this is a positive step. They're not thinking, you know, I'm telling you there's a lot of nihilism. They're not thinking, ah, I'm working up today being a nihilist. I want to do this terrible thing. You want to understand why they do it. And then when you talk, um, be sympathetic. I always feel like even the elites who drive me a little crazy, they're trying, right? They're trying. We actually could have way worse elites than we have. I have been to many countries where that is the case. I think every, every American should be given like a one-year tour, not of the usual touristy places, but of their really, really rotten countries, all right? And you come back thinking, wow, okay, at our worst, we're still so far better than, than so many other countries. And, and um, 
basically have know, some gratitude have some gratitude to to and, and, and sense of preservation to to things that uh, that you do have and uh, not just trying to yep. hurt yourself and in your surroundings with right. what you're you feel that you're lacking right i mean i am sure that both of your lives are very rewarding you are both probably very educated you In the normal time, we're talking pandemic now, but in normal time, you could probably get in a car and go somewhere, get in an airplane and fly somewhere. You could obtain information very easily. You go to good restaurants. You have good friends. I mean, the life of an American for, for the vast majority of us, I'm sure they are, they are at the bottom. That's not the case. But, but for, and at the bottom, it's better than at the bottom of many other countries. I mean, I lived in Paraguay for two years. Um, so I, look, look at the things you've got. Look at your personal life. I think what the web does is make you think that politics is, is like part of your family life. So you're always yelling at the politicians, you know. I mean, you feel about them the way you would feel like if, you know, your, your, your spouse or your, or your boyfriend or your girlfriend betrayed you in some way, right? This is personal feeling. It's not like, now these are people who are out there How much that Trump did touched you personally? How much? I mean, we've got a couple of checks that, that was like a crazy thing, but, but I mean, very little from Washington touches the average American, all right? So this is all, you know, a mistake on distance. And I think we, if we dedicate ourselves more, uh, and, and Dickens has the phrase telescopic philanthropy, which is a character, one of his best characters who, who wants to save uh, the natives in Nigeria but her children are, are falling apart and, and are in peril. So watch the children, watch your family, watch your friends, um, and invest your emotions in there, and invest your head in trying to make the country better. I mean, that's perfectly okay. But trying to get some sort of emotional buzz, you know, with anger or, or virtuousness or whatever out of uh, political stands, probably in the end, this environment is very destructive. The... The thing that really resonated, well, first of all, you keep saying, um, you talk about when you look at the other side or when you, uh, you, you look at people who, who go against the, the, the world that you dream uh, about, we should again reiterate that the, the one value that you do raise is the, the appreciation of uh, a liberal democracy. So why, I think, I think you've, you've made the case already, but, but why liberal democracy? I, I think I need less convincing than maybe Vanessa, but um, I'm, I'm, I'm a conservative in her eyes. So, but but I, I'd, I'd love you to make that, the, the strong case for that. And in the context of our new information age liberal democracy in an information age i mean guys what's the alternative what's the alternative <laughs> give me an alternative i mean is it um the chinese model is the alternative i mean you would have to have the bizarre history that the chinese communist party has had where it was a totalitarian marxist leninist dictatorship then it became kind of like a cowboy capitalist sort of like authoritarian dictator. Now it's going back a little bit more into more control. I mean, that can't be duplicated. So that's not even a model. There's no model there. They're just an evolution. Putinism, that's just a dictatorship. Latin America was full of those things. They, they're not very attractive. So what is the alternative to liberal democracy at, at its most dysfunctional? There are no alternatives. I think 
until somebody comes up with an alternative meaning. In the 20th century, there were many, all right? There were many. I, I my, my you know, point of pride in the um, CIA service was, you know, we won the Cold War. And for people today, that seems like, oh, yeah, well, that was easy because we were good and they were bad. It was not. Many people in free countries believe that the other system was better, okay? Um, that doesn't happen anymore. Nobody has an alternative. Nobody's, lots of people bashing. Nobody's producing alternatives, all right? So I don't have to argue on behalf of uh, liberal democracy because it's the only system standing. Now, what we have to do is make it work a little bit better. And you, you do, you did mention history and, and, and the, the value of having a little more historical perspective in that context. And, and that's something that, that, again, very much resonated with me, because when I get into arguments about those things, I feel that the more you steep yourself in, in history, the more humbling you find your surroundings and what you do have. And your troubles seem... A little more yes. petty compared to the grand sweep of history. I mean, I, I, I think what you described is exactly what I said before. I am a, history was my major in school. So, I mean, um, I, 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 um, I believe that the study of history is exactly what I described before as analysis. Put yourself in the minds of people who are strikingly different from you. And try to figure out why they said the, the things they said and why they did the, the things they said. Sometimes they connect with the present. But I think, in any case, it's a mind-enlarging exercise. Because you are now aware of, you know, if you go to a room and, and you stand at the forum, which I would recommend. It's one of the most beautiful and moving sites ever. Um, but... Looking at it as a tourist is one thing. Looking at it, understanding what that place was to a Roman, particularly to a Roman aristocrat, um, it's, I mean, it, it's very moving. It's very moving. You suddenly, you know, I have had a few moments uh, in my life. I love to travel and I love history. Uh, when I have what I describe as a sense, a feeling of history. And suddenly it's, my eyes get filled with tears and I'm standing there and I don't even know why, why, what's happening to me, right? Um, and, and, uh, and I think it's a very enlarging feeling. And, and I will add that part of the sectarian um, attitude is that history is the history of evil, uh, corruption and oppression. So it's like a, contaminating plague, the farthest away you stay from contact, the better off you are. So uh, part of the sectarian attitude is very, very deeply ignorant of history. This again throws me back to our conversation with Tom Holland. Um, I, before you go, are there any other places that you recognize this type of revolt going on right now i i don't know you've been following the uh the gamestop <laughs> saga as i was reading the headlines uh, this week i could help but think that this is this is martin gurry's the thesis in 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 the realms of the stock exchange it's sectarians from the border anarchistically fucking with the elites in the center and those elites shutting them down. So I don't know if you've been paying attention to that or is there something else that has picked your interest? Um, well, the, the financial thing is very funny because I, I, I saw that Andreessen, Mark Andreessen was giving me credit for, for basically having called this and I'm happy to take all the credit mm -hmm. in the world, but I don't know crap about um, hedge funds or shorting or anything like that. So 
Uh, I think it's in every institution, Adam. I think it's in every institution that we have, it's happening. It's happening, of course, with media. You see that really obviously, uh, but it's happening in the universities. Universities, I mean, what universities are medieval institution, all right, in the age of, of, of digital information. They're, they're, they're resisting because they, they're basically, they have repurposed themselves as a ticket to, you know, the, the upper class, the upper, uh, the upper middle class. So everybody's, you know, cheating and lying about their children so they can get them into the, the best schools. But that's a short game. Uh, in the end, something drastic is going to happen to the universities. I'm very fascinated as to what that's going to be. Um, the same is true probably of business. There are some businesses that are toying with, you know, different uh, structures that are way flatter. Um, I, I'm also looking for that. Uh, every institution, there, there really isn't an exception. Um, every institution we have is a legacy thing. And um, this this tsunami is, is bashing and battering away at each and every one of them. Different speeds, probably the media world went down first. The political wor world went down second. Uh, the business world seems to be holding out the most. Um, but, but um, you know, maybe this is the beginning for the business world, right? Maybe we're now seeing the, the start for that. So I don't know. I mean, I, I don't have a particular uh, place that I'm looking at. I'm, I'm a political, a geopolitical analyst. So I guess I'm fixated on that. Uh, but I say it everywhere in the book, and I mean it, it's everywhere. This conflict is everywhere. I'd love to get in touch with the, with the pessimism um of our guests at the end what are your where are your feelings about this what scares you the most is it the uh the decline of democracy is it the lack of uh, social cohesion where are your frets at the moment like i said i'm a long-term long optimist so that kind of that kind of keeps me smiling uh, through the worst of short-term pessimistic times so um no i mean i i i I, I sleep well at night. I think, um, I think, you know, we're all working this out together. It's not pleasant. Sometimes, you know, people die and that's terrible. Um, but we're not at 30 year war level. I mean, all this talk about an American civil war, I laugh at, you know, having been born in Latin America, I can smell when things like that are about to happen. We're not anywhere near there. Okay. Um, and honestly, um, we need a lot more young people uh, as opposed to old people to have a civil war. Um, so I, I, I think it's the salient fact is turbulence, just terrible turbulence. Some things are very good. I mean, the, the pandemic has shown this. We could have survived without the web during the pandemic. And I don't just mean that Amazon is like Christmas in July. Every, every day I have a gigantic package in front of my house. I mean that, if it weren't for Netflix and, and Hulu and Crunchyroll and whatnot, I would be going star crazy mad, right? So if it weren't for Zoom, we wouldn't be able to do this conversation or have any, see any of our friends during this time. And, or work, or work uh, from home. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, there's a tremendous anti-web uh, feeling right now. I, I call it the, 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 the Mubarak switch syndrome. Just turn the damn thing off. Um, but... Um, but this is like the golden era of, of the digital, man. I mean, it, it, we are surviving because of it. We're fraying and surviving because of it. Well, we're fraying because, well, I mean, yes, uh, we were fraying uh, because of all these 
transitions and changes. But at this particular moment, we're surviving because, right? Because, well, Martin, right. Your your book is fantastic. I recommend it to everyone. And thank you for helping us make sense of things. Well, thanks for the nice words. Thank you so much, Martin. Thank you, Martin. Bye. Thank you for listening to Uncertain Things. Follow us on uncertain.substack.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We are Uncertain Pod on the socials. Please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends and enemies. Till next time, stay sane.